Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. It's just been an amazing morning. Can't wait to hear what's up with you and what you want to talk about today. Have you seen the Elon Musk podcast interview? No. Oh, it's interesting. No. Interesting thing to watch. Um, So, I mean, I watch a lot of Joe Rogan's podcasts, but um, I think they're a lot better visually because you you know you see the the you know response of people and and uh, he's had some good ones recently. Jordan Peterson has been on there. That was you know fantastic one. Sam Harris, of course, has been on there. Oh, have you seen? Have you been? Have you seen the Jordan Peterson Sam Harris? debates at all not yet okay no how are those they're great very interesting um i mean there's two of them because they did two separate days but um yeah i feel like i don't know i when sam harris speaks i can't i can't understand what he's saying whereas with jordan peterson it's like much more coherent and clear and kind of know where where he is but they have yeah they end up having a very rich um, discussion. But anyway, in the Elon Musk um, interview, I'm only, you know, maybe 30 minutes in. It's a two and a half hour thing. So, but um, he's just an interesting guy in terms of his mannerisms and the way that he is. But at one point, we they started talking about, and I thought of you because of, you know, the network effects with, you know, Google and Facebook and, and Instagram. And he said something in there which which just kind of hit me, which was those, those network effect sort of platforms succeed to the extent that they end up resonating with our limbic system. Like they're just a projection of our, of our limbic system, basically. And um, he was going into artificial intelligence a lot. And who, 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 who said, who said that? Elon, Elon Musk. Said no. Yeah. And he just talks a lot about how he's, um, you know, he's been warning everyone about artificial intelligence because it could be really great or it could be really bad and no one is, you know, regulating it. And um, I don't know, it just started sparking ideas um, and different thoughts, you know, related to a lot of the things that you touch on in, in your newsletters. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't know, I just thought I'd throw that out. I, 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 I think all of the concern about artificial intelligence is completely misdirected so artificial intelligence doesn't exist at all like zero okay what we have is really 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 effective algorithms that can basically only do what they're told Even a Go algorithm can only learn Go if it's told to learn Go, and it has to be specifically set up to do so. There is no, none, zero generalized intelligence in computers at all. Hmm. 
and there won't be until somebody solves the evolution price mm. or consciousness, which I think is the same thing. I think it's the same question. I might be wrong. Okay. Here's so like the machines are in, in the present form that computers are take. The machines are never going to wake up ever. And you can take that to the bank here. Here's so that's not going to happen. Here's the real problem. The real problem is that somebody always owns the machine. And the machines are owned by a very, very, very small number of people. And you don't know what their agenda is, but there is one. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. And the, hey, everybody, the machines are going to wake up. That's a distraction from the fact that the people that own machines can turn the whole world into a tyranny really easily. And it's already happening in China, big time, hmm. big time. Okay. So China has face recognition everywhere and they're tracking everybody. And I have a friend who two months ago, he's sitting in church with a hundred people in church in China, 40 police officers come in and they shut the whole place down. They find the pastor $10,000 or something, some huge amount of money. I forget how much money. Uh, and they said, you don't have a license to be meeting here. This is illegal. And they busted the whole thing up. Hmm. Okay. China, and uh, the premier of China just uh, got rid of term limits. And it's, it's turning into a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to be concerned about. All this stuff about it is not going to happen. Not until, not until the fundamental definition of a computer completely changes. It will never happen with Boolean logic ever. Interesting. Ever. So basically so that's my, and go ahead. I was saying, so, so basically what it does is it just, it just amplifies whatever underlying intentions or characteristics that a person or a state or et cetera has. Yes. That's all technology does. It amplifies the dictator. Okay. So the real question is, the real question is what social engineering are the owners of Google, Apple, Facebook, and YouTube, and Amazon doing? That's the question. Yeah. Now, nobody needs to tell you the sacred cows and et cetera of Silicon Valley. I mean, if, if you pay attention, you know who they crucify and who they accept, right? Like the guy that founded Mozilla voted against Proposition 8 or whatever the gay marriage thing was, and he just basically got vomited out. Like, no, you're not entitled to that opinion, right? So there's certain things like they, they just won't tolerate. Um, now, 
like how draconian are they and like how like here great question how biased is the facebook algorithms or any other algorithms in favor of left leaning ideas as opposed to right leaning ideas i don't know mm -hmm. uh, i mean i know the press is extremely biased we all know that but um the, the so i i just think all this ai utopia stuff and you, and you have to notice here's a book you should read you should read a book called um let me let me make sure i get the title right um it's by george gilder it just came out it's called life after google the fall of big data and the rise of the blockchain economy so one of the things that he talks about am I, is am I taking you over? No, you are, actually we're we're okay because I don't I don't have an appointment. So, and and in fact I want to write a newsletter about this. So hey, we're recording and like we we I can I can use this. So so this whole singularity thing. Like, you know what that is, right? We're all going to upload ourselves into the internet and live forever. Mm -hmm. So you're like, well, when are computers going to be smarter than humans and all that? That can keeps getting kicked down the road. Okay. I mean, 10 years ago, it was like 2029. Now it's like 2049. It's always like just far away enough that we can fantasize it about it but not like really actually do anything about it mm -hmm. okay i think i think the singularity it's just an atheist rapture story that's all it is you know the christians are going to be caught up with jesus in the cloud the atheists are going to cut up in the cloud like <laughs> it's the same at a mythological level, it's the yeah. exact same story, okay? Mm -hmm. It's no different, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's based on, okay, so I just came back from Dublin. Um, I went to a conference called What is Life? Um, and that is the title of a book and a series of lectures by Erwin Schrodinger, who is a very famous physicist, who's a, who's a, pioneer of quantum mechanics and Schrodinger gave these talks in 1943 called what is life and the talks in the book um <laughs> it's a little book it's like 60 pages or something and it's it's a book of questions not a book of answers it's basically a physicist looking at biology saying so what is this and the answer is nobody knows. Like if you ask a hundred biologists to define life, you will get a hundred answers. <laughs> I kid you not, right? And so they had, they had this conference and it was the 75th anniversary. And the last time they did it was 25 years ago. So like, you know, so they pulled out all the stops. There were six Nobel Prize winners at this conference. I talked to like four of them. Hmm. One of them was James Watson, who discovered DNA. I got a picture with him. Oh, wow. 
It's on it's it's on the Evolution 2.0 Facebook page. Got a picture with James Watson. Um, by the way, he he said, "Well, I, I don't think they'll ever discover where the genetic code came from." Well, <laughs> I think I think they might. So anyway, um, so there was all these talks. Several of them were about AI. And there was, uh, so one of the things that came up in one of the talks was there was a major meeting at Dartmouth in the late 50s. And it was like defining the parameters of AI. Hmm. And they did a very good job. Like they really like, define the landscape very effectively. And they made all these predictions and their predictions were wildly optimistic. Like how much, you know, they were like, well, we're going to have solved blah, blah, blah by the 1960s or the 1970s. And how far they actually got by then was just light years behind what they predicted. Um, well, so the reason I brought up the what is life conference is I spent two days with all these top scientists in the world. They still can't define it. Now, how are you going to upload something into the cloud that you can't even define? <laughs> and, and, and look, the most fundamental problem of all of it is conscious experience. I am having a conscious experience inside my body and my head, and so are you. The only thing I can know for sure is that I'm having one. Right. I infer, but cannot prove that you're having one, and that your dog's having one, and that your cat's having one, right? Yeah. But every dog owner I know thinks that their dog is having a conscious experience just like we are, right? Yeah. I, I believe it. Okay. I'm guessing that all living things are having a conscious experience. Nobody has any idea what it actually is. Now, there was some great talks about neuroscience. So, for example, um, there's this hot, hot thing in neuroscience called optogenetics. Hmm. Okay. And here's what it is. So, um, I might butcher this a little bit, but something like this. So they can take a super, super, super thin probe. They can attach a photofluorescent bacterium at, to the end of it. Okay, so like fireflies. The, the, um, the back end of a firefly that glows. Yeah. It's, it's symbiotic bacteria that have, uh, that, that glow and when they're stimulated a certain way, that's where that comes from. Okay. So it's bacteria living inside the firefly. And, um, there's, there's a YouTube video called how bacteria talk by Bonnie Bassler. It's my favorite Ted talk. Mm -hmm. And she, she talks about, 
fluorescent bacteria in, I think, jellyfish. And it's really sophisticated. Well, anyway, you take one of these bacteria, put them at the end of a probe, and you can put it right next to a single neuron, and you can stimulate the bacteria to glow, and it will cause the neuron to fire. Wow. So, it is now possible to trigger memories and reactions on a single neuron level. Hmm. And, and then, like, so they can, they can put a mouse in a cage and they can shock the mouse and then they can figure out which neuron carries the memory and use optogenetics to stimulate the neuron in the mouse and recreate the experience of the electric shock in the mouse. They can do that now. Okay, it's kind of scary. So what they're now experimenting with is the neurological correlates of consciousness. Hmm. But they still don't know what consciousness is or where it comes from. Totally opaque. We don't know. And it is resisted analysis for a century. Uh, there's a philosopher named David Chalmers. He calls it the hard problem of consciousness. Um, well, until somebody solves this, nobody's going to get uploaded into the internet. Now, let's say we did upload ourselves into the internet. Any Google or Facebook advertiser knows what hell you would have to put up with because somebody owns this and you have to pay rent and there's rules and you can get banned and you can get kicked off, right? Like, okay, this is a computer platform people. Okay. And they're all owned by people and they all have these rules, right? Like, what could a, a Google advertiser who's been Google slapped or banned tell you about living your life on somebody else's computer? Nobody friggin' talks about this. Okay? So we're going to live in the cloud, okay? And who controls the advertising? It, okay. They have, they own your brain. They have direct access to your brain. And you think somebody's like not going to manipulate it for political purposes or ideological purposes or for shopping malls or whatever. Are you kidding? And then I heard a talk by a lady about a month and a half ago at the ASA conference. It was great. She goes, she goes, how do you notice that these guys with fantasies about living in the cloud all they seem to want to do in the cloud is think about stuff and have sex. Like, do they do anything else? You know, and then they write these, they write these books and they talk about how, well, you know, there's going to be some people who prefer to remain on earth and be Luddites and stay behind. But then there's going to be the rest of us who decide to move forward and evolve into the future. Like, right. Oh, like the arrogance, like, Okay, if, 
if you lost an eye, none of these people could give you a new eye if they're life dependent. You could give, you could put machine guns, you could line up their family, say, okay, you give this guy a new eye or we're going to kill your wife and children. They couldn't do it to save their life. But they're going to recreate the whole entire human experience in the cloud? Total nonsense. Total bullshit. Not going to happen. Okay, not unless, not unless somebody figures out consciousness and recreates it. Frankly, I don't, I, I think you'd have to, unless somebody can create a cell from scratch without using any borrowed parts, forget it. You know, Craig Venter, who's as, he's as close as anybody's ever come to creating a cell. Okay, and what he did was he replaced the genome of a bacterium and then reprogrammed the thing, okay, with a, and it cost him $40 million to do it, okay, and he was talking about this one time, and he said, he said, now a ribosome is the part of a cell that reads RNA and turns it into amino acids. It's basically the heart of, gene of genetics is a ribosome. He says, he says, um, he was talking about, you know, uh, you, using, using ribosomes that are already in the cell, which he has to. And he goes, well, you know, like the, the ribosome is like a Ferrari. <laughs> you know, it, it's like, it's like an exquisite piece of machinery. And one of the, one of the people at the Dublin conference um, is, was Ada Yonat. And I was talking to her about being a prize for the Evolution 2.0, uh, talking about being a judge about a year ago. And she was there. And she's a, she's a world expert on the ribosome. And her Nobel Prize has something to do with the ribosome. And, uh, you know, and she was, she was showing all these slides about, like, it's, well, it's an, it's basically an enzyme, and it's got or it's got fifty-seven proteins, and I, I how, however many enzymes. It's just it's just amazing piece of machinery, and we don't even know how to build that, right? So, oh my goodness, um, we are we are not anywhere near as far in technological evolution as we like to tell ourselves that we are, um, and. And then on top of that, we are also not as morally and ethically evolved as we like to tell ourselves we are either. And so what all of this does is it covers up the fact that you have people manning the controls who, you know, many of whom they've never read Aristotle They've never read Paradise Lost or Moses or Jeremiah or Jesus or, you know, Buddha or like, they, they haven't even mastered the old literature yet. Like they don't even un understand what the real issues are in life in the first place. And they're going to like create a new philosophy, man, it's, it is serious hubris. So, I mean, I'm, I'm on a big rant here right now. 
um, and apologize if I'm uh, getting a little too edgy, but I, I you, uh, a lot of these people just have their head up their backside. Yeah, well, it um, but it doesn't keep them from it, making mistakes. Yeah, it reminds me of, of in the, the talk with Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. Eventually, I just came to the conclusion that Sam Harris is so caught up in how things should be that he can't see what how things are, right? And he and he and, and like you said, it's his operating system or philosophy is not grounded in you know the fundamental whatever that you know. Um, you know, fabric is that seems to be consistent across, you know, humans physiologically. And that has manifested in, in these myths in various forms. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, it seems like, you know, there needs to be whoever is going to be in charge of the wheels should have a grounding in the things that are, that have, you know, been around for 2000 years, not two or three years. Right. Well, you know, Jordan Peterson is absolutely right that Sam, Sam Harris is, has confused our ability to measure things with our ability to prioritize. Okay, so, so what, what, what the new atheists and people like Sam Harris want is they want... They want a world where we have measured everything and we have driven all the mythology out and that we are making all of our decisions based on facts. Okay? That's what they want. And that's, that's laudable in a certain sense. And I get it. And I especially get it because I'm an electrical engineer. And electrical engineering is extremely precise, right? It's it might be the most precise kind of engineering that there is. Um, well, here's the problem. So let's say that we can measure everything. We can measure your pain receptors and we can measure your neurons and we can, we could get all, all the charts and graphs that you could ever want. Right. We don't have access to your lived conscious experience, but we have access to all of the correlates, okay? So we're gonna put them all in spreadsheet. Well, here's the problem. Which column of the spreadsheet are you gonna optimize by? Yeah, or even more important, what is the, what is the, you know, the, the lens or the operating system through which you make that decision? Right. Right. Okay. And those are moral and ethical and they can't be reduced to math. Okay. And look, everybody, everybody knows what it's like when you try to reduce morality to math. Um, it's just that most of people haven't thought of it this way. Every time, every time somebody does something hurtful or harmful to somebody else, and, and then they pass a law, right? So, 2008 crash, so they passed Sarbanes-Oxley. Well, let's, let's make the 1,700-page 
or book of rules that are going to prevent a 2008 crash. And all you end up with is a bunch of friggin' bureaucracy and really smart criminals figuring out loopholes. Yeah. And then you, you, and then you change, you, you tie all this, the, the, the honest people's arms are all tied behind their back because they have to jump through 900 hoops just to like buy pens and pencils. Right. That, that's what happens when you take an algorithmic approach to a fundamentally humanistic problem. Right. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the best solution that was ever offered by anybody was love of the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Somebody asked Jesus, like, what are the greatest commandments? He says, there they are. Now, what does that mean? That means you you first and foremost devote yourself to the highest possible conception of good that you can muster and you love the other person as much as yourself. And if you can do those two things, then you don't have to spend eight years trying to argue about how to sort the spreadsheet. Well, are we loving the people and are we committing ourselves to the highest possible ideals? I don't think Sam Harris is ever going to improve on that. Frankly, he hates it. He, he totally rejects the first premise entirely, which is actually a problem because then there is no highest good. And then you're just in a, you become a technocrat. You're like, well, you know, if we get good enough at measuring things, we're eventually going to figure all this out. It's like, well, it's not about measurement. It's about love. Um, and love, love is not a measurement. Well, the good news with that, what I like about that approach is that it's also physiologically rooted to a degree, right? In, in the tribal element of, look, I need to be, I need to do what's best for the tribe so that, you know, because that makes more people likely to want me on the team and, you know, nature is selecting for leadership right and so it's just a matter of how it's more a matter of perspective okay my tribe is no longer 100 people but you view the tribe as uh, as as the world right but well right and and the good the good samaritan story re redefines the tribe right so so jesus tells a story about well there was like a priest and a levite and a somebody else and they all walked down the road and and there was a man who got beat up and they all walked by, and then the Samaritan came and picked him up, took him to the mm -hmm. hospital, and paid the bill, and then came back to check on him. Well, Samaritans were like, um, they were they were the most reviled people, right? And in the story, the guy from the wrong, wrong tribe is the guy that helps the guy in need, and he... And, he, and then Jesus says, who is the neighbor? And somebody says, the person who helped him. Um, and he says, yes, you got that right. Okay. So like in the, like the highest view is the whole world is the tribe. Like any suffering human being is a member of your tribe. 
right? And and um, and so you're right. Um, you know, we we have we have these story, you know, of altruism and like sacrificing for the greater good. Um, but but in the ancient world, you would only do that within your tribe. And of course, we all have the tendency to lapse into that. But the message is no, like there shouldn't that boundary shouldn't be restricted to anybody. Um, and, and I think those ideas um, from thousands of years ago uh, planted the seeds of democracy. In fact, I've, I've got an interview with Adi Kashin. It's on my blog where we actually talked about that. Like we talked about where, where did the ideas of equality come from in Western civilization? And so, yeah, like I think, I think Jordan's exactly right. And um, a lot of the atheists, they don't understand what's, what Jordan is saying when he's saying, well, I know you say you're an atheist, but you're not acting like one. <laughs> like, you're acting like there is an objective higher set of values. You're just not verbally acknowledging that that's what you're doing. Um, so I, like I've, I've been paying attention to these kind of debates for about 25 years. I completely understand what he's saying, but they seem to just not, not get it, you know? So there's Matt Dillahunty and he says something like, like, uh, well, Jordan Peterson's trying to tell me I'm not really an atheist. He's saying, well, you're not acting like one because an atheist an, an atheist assumption is that it's just matter and it's just materials and like nobody actually acts as though that's true. And then they kind of construct a story as to why it would be true anyway. But anyway, I'm, I'm probably getting off track at this point. So I don't know. Was that entertaining? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, I, I want to use it. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I, w I think I want to get a transcript. I told Fancher just the other day. I want, I want to do a newsletter where we talk about AI, um, because I, I think I think total distraction and and nobody understands the real dangers better than somebody whose business failed because they got Google slapped. That's like, that is the signature problem of AI, right there, is. Um, it's the person in the control room going, I don't want to deal with the messiness and complexity of who's really good and bad. So we're just going to invent a rule and we're just going to kill everybody on this side of a dotted line. And I, I mean, I witnessed tens of thousands of businesses just getting wiped out in one fell swoop because of that. Yeah. And it was this, it was this mix of government regulation and fear of the federal trade commission and fear of government regulators and the Obama administration. And, um, so like, I mean, I don't know if you know this history, but you know, back in, well, it happened several times, but it re really got bad around 2009, not, not long after Obama came into office and Google got fined $500 million for allowing illegal Canadian pharmaceutical companies 
to advertise in the United States drugs at Canadian prices. Hmm. Okay. $500 million fine. And then there was something else. There was another fine for something. And basically what the U.S. government did was they said, ah, we can hold Google responsible for the sins of their advertisers. Hmm. So we're going to do that. Then we only have one person to watch instead of a million. So Google had to protect their backside. You know, it's not too good for the share price when you get $500 million fines, right? So Google concocted a set of guidelines for what they considered to be a scammy web page. It was, well, if you're making guarantees and if you're making promises, and if it has anything to do with money or health or like all these things, well, that's just going to be illegal from now on. So if, you, if you're in the health space, you can't make any promises and you can't make any guarantees. Even if your cream makes the rash go away, like you can't. Right. Or even if your real estate deal really does make money, if you do the stuff, you, you can't promise anything. And if, if you do, we'll just shut down your AdWords account. Well, there you go, man. Like yeah. signature, like, like bureau, this is bureaucracy. It's, what? Like a, it's like a black swan for those that are, involved in it and it could happen at any moment even though if you've seen the pattern yep. in the past you know what happens with google adwords you know when it's google and you're in the cloud the same sort of thing is going to happen which makes it not a black swan to those who see that pattern but those with who are living inside of it it would be yeah yeah so um yeah, well, so I'll be very interested to see what kind of uh, conversations this stimulates. Um, yeah, like this is a whole, boy, it'd be really interesting to see like one year from now what kind of conversations we're having. I think this is the real conversation. What we've been talking about, this is the real stuff. I think all that other stuff is just a circus show. Hmm. And who knows what, like, I mean, Elon Musk very well may believe that AI is going to wake up and all of that. I mean, that's, I understand lots of people believe that. Um, I, I'm not saying that everybody is consciously trying to distract us from the real problems, but they are distracting us from the real problems, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's kind of on the fence of whether it will wake up or not, but he's, you know, more in line of it's, everything, you know, what you said is it depends on who's using it. It will be used as a weapon, right? And so that's the kind of thing that he's right. worried about, right? So yeah, I, don't, I wonder to what extent it's a, it's a well, 
of, of the atom bomb, right? I mean, lots of people have the atom bomb. It's only been used twice. Um, so to what extent mm -hmm. humans are in control, do we actually, even bad humans, you know, um, make the right, decide not to do something completely fatalistic? Well, I think the, the pivotal issue in all of this is free speech. And, and this is why Jordan Peterson has just been catapulted to such visibility. Um, I mean, wow. The, the, I mean, I watched one of his videos three or four years ago. And I could tell, I mean, I didn't think a lot about it really, but he, he, he was a memorable guy. And I could tell that he had a, a very small, loyal cult following at that point. Mm -hmm. um but then you know i've watched watched the thing take off well free speech is the signature issue of do you have the right to say what you want to say so china is just tightening the screws down on free speech and most of us didn't think they could ever pull it off but they did they they did the great firewall of china and they've managed to police the whole thing and they managed to turn the whole entire country into a surveillance state and uh, I have a friend who got um, uh, he he's he was in India doing Christian mission work, and guys with machine guns marched him to the airport and flew him to Sri Lanka and made sure that when he left Sri Lanka that he wasn't going back to India. Hmm. So, um, there's no free speech in China or India, and that's that's a third of the world's population right there. So, I guess the interesting thing is, one I open. I guess the interesting thing is to what extent it's and and how it's different and how it plays out when it's government imposed versus when it's imposed by you know the big for powerful corporations like what is what is the difference of that's like that's a really fundamental question i mean i don't i haven't thought about that enough right but which, which way does it does it go so or well any different i th i think i think the beginning of the answer to that question is just understanding algorithms okay and any, anybody who's written one or works with one or like even, you know, playing with Photoshop or that, that photo editor that's on your Mac, well, there's always dials that they can turn, right? So they can measure all of this stuff, right? And they can't measure it perfectly, but they can at least get it on 80-20 uh, graphs and they can get it on on uh you know bell curves and stuff and they can always sit there and they can always they can they can pick something they can always tilt the playing field mm -hmm. at will there's always there's always somebody behind a control panel who can do that and does do that right so um if somebody at facebook said oh well i i don't I don't think Trump supporters 
have a right to be heard in the world. And since we can identify with great accuracy who all the Trump supporters are, I can make sure that all those people get 10% less likes and nobody will know. Mm -hmm. And nobody will know. Nobody can prove it. And there's, there's, um, there's rules and in information theory and um, algorithmic theory that explain why. Like it's not possible um, to know the settings of the machine from the inside of the machine. And anybody on Facebook is inside the machine, not outside the machine. So yeah. like who, know, who knows how much social engineering is going on? Yeah. But I'm, I, guarantee, I guarantee it's gone. And there's, the, I mean, then there's the, the, there's like this micro paradox because you talk about the death of CNN, it's the, the death of Fox, you know, people are no longer watching those things because you can't get points across in, you know, 30 second sound bites. And so there's a migration to podcasts yep. or YouTube um, where, you know, Joe mm -hmm. can have a two and a half hour podcast on there, but that's YouTube. So Google owns that. So to what extent can they actually... When I open YouTube, my search for my recommended viewing for you is no longer Jordan Peterson or, you know, something else based on what I like, but based on what the algorithm, what you're saying, wants me to like, right? So it's, right. Like, it's like there's no, potentially no difference between the two. It's just a different media and a different format. But whereas someone at CNN is turning those dials and saying, you know, what's going out there, potentially Google can be doing the same thing even though I can choose what content I want to watch, if I'm not, they can, they can decide what becomes most salient for me to actually view versus what I have to search for. So remember our conversation about which column of the spreadsheet are you going to sort by? Right? Yeah. That is, that is the fundamental question of Google, Facebook, YouTube, Amazon, Apple. That's it. There is a spreadsheet and it has to be sorted by something. And somebody is deciding how it's being sorted. Is it being sorted by money? Is it being sorted like there's, there's a million things you can optimize for. Anybody that's gone deep into marketing analytics and sales funnels knows like, well, or, are we optimizing for impressions? Are we optimizing for clicks? Are we optimizing for opt-ins? Are we optimizing for short-term customer value? Are we optimizing for long-term customer value? Are we optimizing for social media likes and shares? Are we so you like somebody's deciding? Hmm. What if there's a way? Who is it? And what are they doing? Who are they accountable to? What if there was a way where you optimize for, you know, if we're all linked into the cloud some way, like through our emotions or something else, it's optimized for various emotions. Like right now, it's just a bandwidth problem where you can't, you can't, you know, the, the algorithms can't tell direct exactly what's happening in your brain. They can only tell based on your behavior. Right. And that, and that's what Elon right. was talking about. It's like a bandwidth problem with, with, you know, with us being true cyborgs, right? Right now you have to do stuff on your phone in order for that feedback to occur. But if it were a bigger bandwidth and your emotions were actually involved and, and linked into it somehow, then, you know, Google and Facebook could be optimizing for the emotions of, of love versus fear or, you know, community versus. Well, 
they could, but it doesn't really change it, right? It, 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 so you still have, this goes back to Jordan's and Sam's argument about optimizing for well-being. And Jordan says, define well-being. And no, nobody can define it. Yeah. Right? Like in your life, like, look, there are people that optimize for happiness in the present moment and they become drug addicts. There's people that optimize for the next hundred years and they become great grandpas that their grandchildren love to go to their house, right? It's like, okay, if, if individual human beings can't hardly figure this out, how is Alphabet Corporation going to figure this out, right? So, like, man, there's more questions than answers. I mean, that, I guess that's the point here is, is uh, and we're, like, we're just, well, I mean, we're running pell-mell into the future. Yeah, I, 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 if you like, this kind of gets into the 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 element into the realm of faith, right? But you know, if you if you have the faith that things basically get better and over time progress in the direction of love or whatever you want you might want to call it, there are going to be peaks and valleys, and you know, from an anti-fragile perspective, there are going to be thing horrible things that happen, like the horrors of the twentieth century. But over time, you need those shocks in order for things to actually progress upwards. And so on a micro level, things may go up and may go down. But over time, you have the faith that things ultimately get better. And there's a fundamental drive, which every organism has, then the organism as a whole has the same thing. It just may not, it just depends over what time period you, you view things. Well, you know... I, I get what you're saying, but you know, I think World War I and World War II were totally unnecessary. I, I, I don't think there's any guarantee that you're not going to have massive catastrophes. I was, I was talking to George Church about this at Harvard about a month ago. I'm, I, he's one of my prize judges, and he's a leading geneticist uh, at Harvard Medical School. And we had a sit down for about an hour. And mo mostly what we talked about was, well, what could go wrong in the world? Like genetic engineering is one thing that could go wrong in the world, but like it's not the only thing, you know. So, so we, we, we talked about that. And, well... Like if you have kind of a mechanical faith that the world is just going to keep getting better, I think that I think that turns a blind eye to the real struggle between good philosophies and bad ones. And there, there's no guarantee that the good philosophy is always going to win out. Um, you know, we still got a whole bunch of people that think Marxism is a good idea. Even though we've got a hundred million dead bodies to testify that it was a really bad idea. Right. And, you know, there's been an entire bodies of knowledge and scientific discoveries and everything that have been lost. They've, they've just been lost. There's many more that have been almost lost, but just barely 
resurrected from the dead. You know, like symbiogenesis theory, for example, uh, which Lynn Margulis popularized in the, in the 70s and 80s, and she eventually vindicated herself, and I got a podcast about this. Well, you know, symbiogenesis theory was fully developed by the 1920s, and that was almost completely lost. And so this can happen, like evolution is not guaranteed. And what some people think is evolution is really de-evolution. So I think it's very tricky. And if you have, if you have faith that life is just going to get better and better and better, that really is just faith. Well, I don't mean that it's going to get better and better and better without any major downsides. Like I'm no. not saying that. Like, I believe yeah. there's going to be some catastrophe is going to happen. We don't know what it's going to be. Some black swan will happen in yeah. the next 10 years, maybe it's next year. Like, no doubt about any of that. Um, but my, I guess right. my philosophy is that, like, humanity as a whole is anti-fragile to the extent that we can actually learn from and improve on, our, on those philosophies and use them as operating systems moving forward. That's one, that's like my, that's my, my viewpoint, but I don't, you know, by any means think that, you know, there isn't going to be catastrophes because it's, it's history. It's like, you know, the Will and Ariel Durant book of the lessons of history. So, you know, those, I 100% believe those things, but that, you know, overall, you know, you know, wolves may die, but the pack survives kind of philosophy. Well, um, just a little anecdote. I, I'm reading this book that Derek Dearden gave me and I can't remember the title right off the top of my head, but, um, there's this archeologist talking about how they had essentially modern plumbing and flush toilets on the Island of Crete 3000 years ago. Hmm. And people think that they were invented in the British empire and that it actually, no, um, they had it 3000 years ago and they lost it. And um, so boy, um, you know, Brian Todd made a great comment the other day. He said, he said, human societies have lived for thousands and thousands of years without technology. But no technological society can live without the ancient stories and narratives, um, which essentially is what it's really what Jordan Peterson is about. Is that there's these there's these very fundamental archetypal stories. You know, Brian's been reading Aesop's Fables, most of which are these little tiny short little. Some of them are a paragraph. You know, and so, well, I mean, this is, this is why we have this whole pre-Gutenberg thing in Planet Perry is, is if you have your arms around some of this really old stuff and you're not, you're actually elevating it above the modern, right? So, so what, what, like, so what is the Renaissance time practice? It's cell phone goes over here and ancient literature, like you, you start, 
you start with the ancient literature, not with the technology, right? And I think like that's like a really fundamental, fractal, cultural, like this is how we prioritize things. We always prioritize the ancient knowledge. So the, the technology is subject to the ancient knowledge. And then we won't do something really stupid with it. And that's how the pack survives, actually. We could, we could destroy the whole entire pack with one push of one button. It would be over, right? So, you know, let cooler heads prevail. <laughs> well, this has been great. Yeah. And it's all in video, so that's great. Uh, maybe, well, maybe I'll take a look at it. Maybe we'll use yeah. it. I'll, I'll ask your permission before we do that. Sure. So. Yeah. All right, Perry. Sounds good. Take care. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. <laughs>